Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about Jessalyn Rich, the prison guard who mysteriously disappeared. Body's never been found. Now, Frontera Prison, located 45 miles south of Los Angeles, California, is one of the largest women's penitentiaries in the United States. Its maximum security wing houses some of California's most dangerous female offenders. Yet, it is the alleged criminal activities of some guards and administrators that has shoved Frontera into the public spotlight. During the early 1990s, former prison employees made sensational allegations of widespread drug trafficking at the prison. They tied these charges of corruption to a pair of seemingly isolated incidents Incidents, the disappearance and subsequent murder of a Frontera guard, Jessalyn Rich, in 1984, and the controversial death of 25-year-old inmate named Terry Lucas some three years later. Frontera's maximum security wing houses some of California's most dangerous female offenders. Yet it is the alleged criminal activities of some guards and administrators that has shoved Frontera into the public spotlight. In recent years, former prison employees have made sensational allegations of widespread drug trafficking at the prison. They have tied these charges of corruption to a pair of seemingly isolated incidents. The disappearance and subsequent murder of a Frontera guard, Justin Rich, in 1984, and the controversial death of an inmate named Terry Lucas three years later. Jessalyn was a 35-year-old divorced mother of two who lived in Riverside, California. She worked as a prison guard at Frontera for two years and was hoping to be promoted to sergeant. She was well-liked by her co-workers and the inmates. While working there, she had maintained a straight-A average in criminology classes at night school. At the time of her disappearance, she had reportedly grown concerned about drug dealings inside of Frontera. She was last seen on November 11th of 1984 at Charlie's Wild West Saloon, a country western bar in Orange, California, where she and her friend Marilyn Alt were joined by two male acquaintances. Now, according to Marilyn, at some point during the evening, Jessalyn suddenly sat still and looked past her to the front door. She looked at Jessalyn and noticed that her eyes looked wide and fearful. Despite this, Marilyn did not turn around and look at who was at the door. Within a few moments, Jessalyn came back into the conversation as normal. A few minutes later, at around 8.30pm, she left the table saying that she had to go to the bathroom. Marilyn watched as Jessalyn turned the corner to go down the hallway towards the bathroom. She also noticed a man following Jessalyn towards said bathroom. Marilyn never saw Jessalyn again. She literally vanished without a trace, leaving her newly purchased 1984 Nissan sports car in the bar's parking lot. Jessalyn Rich was last seen on November 11th, 1984, at a country western bar, where she and a friend Marilyn Alt were joined by two male acquaintances. In school. <laughs> See, that's your problem. You, you gotta get out more and live life. That's what it's all about there. And all of a sudden, she sits very still and looks almost past me to the front door. Jessalyn, you okay? And I look at her, and her eyes drew wide and uh, fearful looking. But I didn't look to the door. I just, for some reason, just didn't turn around. And then uh, she came back into uh, the conversation. <laughs> uh, I'll be right back. Jessalyn, I'll keep you seat. Okay. <laughs> As she uh, turns around the corner to go down the hallway to the bathroom, 
Uh, I, I, a gentleman appears to me out of the side of my eye going directly behind her. And that's the last I see her, ever. Jesslyn Rich literally vanished without a trace. Her friends and family launched an all-out search. To them, it seemed harshly out of character for her to abandon her children and scrape her career aspirations. But investigators said they had no evidence to support the family's belief that she had been kidnapped and possibly murdered. According to Jesslyn's brother Gary Munns, investigators made light of the situation, calling them distraught relatives and suggesting that she may have just run off on a fling with someone. He thought that it was absurd that they would suggest that since she had a nearly perfect work record, being only late once and a 4.0 grade point average in night school. She was apparently making more money than before and was getting her house paid off. Gary also noted that Jesslyn did not make any bank withdrawals prior to her disappearance, nor did she take any extra clothes or valuables when she vanished. Following it, she did not use her credit cards or bank book. Finally, she did not contact her children or other family members, which was uncharacteristic of her. Gary felt that the police did not question witnesses thoroughly or follow up on leads pertaining to the case. Gary tore apart Jesslyn's house searching for clues that police might have overlooked, and when he sifted through her trash, he found evidence that her knowledge of illegal activities at the prison had put her life in danger. He found several pieces of paper that had been torn up into many small pieces. He picked up a few pieces and could tell that it was written in her handwriting. They appeared to be notes or letters to a friend and co-worker of hers. He took them home and pieced them together. The letter had been written to another guard at Frontera. Scrawled on the margin of the last page was Jesslyn's haunting recital of an apparent threat she'd received from another co-worker that anyone interfering with his drug activities would be taken care of. At the time, the letter was the only concrete evidence indicating that Jesslyn had met with foul play. Her family and friends launched an all-out search. To them, it seemed harshly out of character for Jesslyn to abandon her children and scrap her career aspirations. But police investigators said they had no evidence to support the family's belief that Jesslyn had been kidnapped and possibly murdered. They made light of it, called us just distraught relatives, suggested that my sister had just ran off on a fling with some person, which is totally absurd given her work record of only being late once and a 4.0 grade point average student. It just was unheard of. Gary Muntz tore apart his sister's house, searching for clues the police might have overlooked. When he sifted through Justin's trash, he found evidence that her knowledge of illegal activities at the prison had put her life in danger. And inside in the plastic bag were there many, many pieces of paper torn up, very, very small. I picked up a few of these and I could tell that it was my sister's writing or printing. Um, and they were uh, apparently notes or letters to a friend of hers, a co-worker. And I figured that I would take them home and sort them out later. The letter had been written to another guard at Frontera. Scrawled on the margin of the last page was Jesslyn's haunting recital of an apparent threat she had received from a co-worker, that anyone interfering with his drug activities would be taken care of. At the time, this letter was the only concrete evidence indicating that Jesslyn had met with foul play. 
Three years later, the case had faded from public view. Then, in 1987, the mystery was suddenly thrust back onto centre stage when prisoner Terry told Thompson she knew what happened to Jessalyn. Now, Terry was a former housekeeper who was in prison on a parole violation. In fall of 1987, she was sent to Frontier's infirmary to be treated for a breast tumour. In November, she was found dead in the infirmary where she was recovering from a breast cancer biopsy. To some, the incident appeared highly questionable. According to former Frontier guard Betty J. Thompson, an officer from another wing of the prison had approached Terry shortly before she died. The unauthorized visit apparently terrified Terry, and according to Thompson, Terry normally came off as tough, mean, and mouthy. But when Terry saw the officer walking down the hall, her whole demeanor changed. She was absolutely devastated by his presence. Thompson claims that the officer was determined to unlock Terry's cell. He retreated only when Thompson threatened to report him. She said that normally officers back other officers, they do not back inmates. But in this particular instance, she almost automatically stood in front of the door and refused to let him in. After the officer left, Thompson opened the cell and went in to talk with Terry. Terry said that the officer scared her. She said that he did that in order to keep her quiet. She then said that she knew who was involved in Jessalyn's disappearance and she claimed to have information and evidence to back it up. Thompson was stunned by Terry's revelation that she knew Jessalyn's fate. In November of 1987, Lucas was found dead in Frontera's infirmary, where she was recovering from a cancer biopsy. To some, the incident appeared highly questionable. According to former Frontera guard Betty Thompson, an officer from another wing of the prison had approached Terry Lucas shortly before she died. The unauthorized visit apparently terrified the 25-year-old Lucas. This was an inmate that, was, that came off as tough and mean and mouthy, but when, the, when she saw the officer walking down the hall, her whole demeanor changed. She was absolutely devastated by his presence. Thompson claims that the officer was determined to unlock Terry Lucas's cell. He retreated only when Thompson threatened to report him. You just can't come into an area where you're not allowed. Most of the time, officers back officers. We don't, we don't back inmates. But in this particular instance, it was just almost automatic that I would stand in front of the door and not let him in there. After this officer left the area, I keyed the door and went in to, to talk to Terry Lucas in her cell. She said the officer scared her, and the reason he scared her is because it was to make her be quiet. And she tells me that she's got information, she's got evidence, she knows who was involved in the disappearance of Jesslyn Rich. I can tell you who, I can tell you what. I got all the stuff. I can give you all the evidence you need. Betty Thompson was stunned by Lucas's revelation that she knew the fate of Jesslyn Rich, the Frontera guard who had disappeared under strange circumstances in 1984. The morning after the extraordinary conversation with Terry, Thompson returned to the imprisoned infirmary. When she walked over to touch Terry, she noticed that she was dead. She went to the nurse's station and told them about Terry. She also told them about the coldness of the room, that Terry was not covered, her eyes were open, and her breakfast tray had not been touched. The nurses told Thompson that they would take care of it. Incredibly, Thompson claims that Terry's body remained in the cell for a full three days before the county coroner's office was called on November 24th. Former officer Barbara Leon seemed to confirm Thompson's story. 
She claimed that on the night before Turi was removed, she checked her cell three times and noticed that she was in the same position each time. She also never covered herself with a blanket, even though it was cold that night. The morning after her extraordinary conversation with Lucas, Officer Thompson returned to the prison infirmary. When I walked over to touch her, I noticed that Terry was dead. I went out of the cell and I went down to the nurse's station and I told them what, what I had seen and what I knew and um, the coldness of the room, that she was not covered, her eyes were open, um, her breakfast tray had not been touched and the nurses told me they would take care of it. Incredibly, Betty Thompson claims that the inmate's body remained in the cell for a full three days before the county coroner's office was called. According to Thompson, an official from the coroner's office was initially mystified by what he found. She claims there were blades of grass in Terry's hair and multiple bruises on her face, ears, neck and lower arms. Her right arm appeared to be broken. The official told Thompson that he believed that Terry had been murdered. He told her that he saw evidence that Terry had been suffocated with a pillow that was found underneath her broken arm. Thompson says that after the official met with high-level prison administrators in Terry's cell, he had a sudden change of heart. He told Thompson that they were not going to classify it as a murder and that they were not going to say that she was laying there dead for three days. He said that they were going to say that she was accidentally laying there only two hours and that the cause of death was actually complications due to diabetes. The autopsy report later listed this as the cause of death. However, it did note that there was visible evidence of trauma on her body. According to Thompson, an official from the coroner's office was initially mystified by what he found. Betty claims there were blades of grass in Lucas's hair and multiple bruises on her face, ears, neck, and lower arms. Her right arm appeared to be broken. He asked who killed this inmate, and he's saying that this inmate was murdered. He is saying that he sees evidence that she was suffocated with the pillow that had been under her arm that appeared to be broken. Betty Thompson says that after the official met with high-level prison administrators in Lucas's cell, he had a sudden change of heart. And he told me that we were not going to call it murder, and we were not going to say that she was laying there dead for three days. We were going to, in fact, say that she was actually laying there only two hours, and that the cause of death was actually um, complications due to diabetes. Thompson says that she refused to go along with the apparent cover-up. She maintains that one of her superiors demanded that she change her report on Terry's death. According to her, she was subjected to threats and intimidation for six grueling hours. One high administrator said to her that, and I quote, the same thing that happened to Jessalyn Rich could easily happen to you, end quote. At that point, she broke down and cried. She realized that she had not mentioned Terry's confession about knowing Jessalyn's fate. For the administrator to bring up Jessalyn, it made Thompson realize that Terry died because she knew too much about Jessalyn's disappearance. Thompson says she finally gave in and signed a false report that was typed for her, but she added on the bottom of it that she'd signed it under duress and that the information in it was untrue. She was later told that the report was ripped up, another one was retyped with the same things from the first one, and her signature was forged on it. An inmate clerk confirmed this, claiming that she had to retype Thompson's report four times. She also witnessed one of the other officers forging Thompson's signature. Betty Thompson says as she refused to go along. How many times do I have to tell you, Thompson? You can't put this information in your report. Now, you know what you're supposed to write. Just 
do it. Thompson maintains that one of her superiors demanded that she change her report on Terry Lucas's death. You are not leaving this institution until you do as you are told. According to Thompson, she was subjected to threats and intimidation for six grueling hours. You can kiss your career with the Department of Corrections. Goodbye. There was one high administrator that even made the comment that the same thing that happened to Jesslyn Rich could easily happen to me. At that point in time, I broke down and cried. Um, that's what this was all about, and I hadn't told anything what Terry Lucas had said. I hadn't told them anything about that part. And for him to bring up Jesslyn Rich and her disappearance, it said why Terry Lucas had died. It had definitely had something to do with that. Thompson says she finally gave in and signed a false report that was typed for her. But I added on the bottom that I had signed the document under duress and the document was untrue. To my knowledge, that document was ripped up. Another one was retyped saying the similar things that were on the first document and that my, my signature was forged. Thompson claims there were further attempts at intimidation. They began on a next shift with an anonymous phone call. The caller apparently said, quote, Thompson, if you don't learn how to do things in the proper manner, you'll end up dead alongside some muddy ditch, end quote. The following day, Thompson had an unnerving encounter with one of her superiors. The superior asked if she'd been receiving any threatening phone calls, giving an example of, quote, you might be found dead in a ditch one night, end quote. Thompson became extremely frightened because she knew that her superior was involved in threatening her. Otherwise, how else would she know verbatim what had been said in the phone call? Betty Thompson claims there were further attempts at intimidation. They began on her next shift with an anonymous phone call. Infirmary Officer Thompson. Thompson, if you don't learn how to do things in the proper manner, you'll end up dead alongside some muddy ditch. The following day, Thompson had an unnerving encounter. Hey, have you been receiving threatening phone calls? What are you talking about? Oh, like you might be found dead in a ditch one night? Um, at this point in time, the yes, hair on the back of my neck just stood straight up. I was absolutely petrified because I knew that she knew what they were saying to me and that she was part of whoever was threatening me. Thompson says the menacing calls and harassment continued for seven months. During that time, someone had begun following her home from work, and finally in June of 1988, the threats turned to violence. Someone shot at her as she got out of her car and walked towards her house. She immediately called the police, who arrived there moments later. As she was filing a police report, she received a phone call from an unidentified man who said, quote, Next time, we won't miss, end quote. The police officer saw how upset she was by the call and included it in his report. Thompson says a menacing cause and harassment continued for seven months. Finally, in June of 1988, the threats turned to violence. Betty Thompson immediately called the police, who arrived at her home moments later. As I was upstairs filing a police report about this, the shooting, uh, a phone call came in and I picked up the phone. It was a male voice and he said, next time we won't miss. Uh, the police officer saw my face and saw how upset I was. He included that in his report. 
1990, the brewing scandal at Frontera was the subject of a series of front-page special reports in the Orange County Register. The article supported insider accounts of drug dealing and corruption. That same year, Thompson and five other guards testified before state Senate hearings on the alleged offences at Frontera Prison. In 1990, the brewing scandal at Frontera was the subject of a series of front-page special reports in the Orange County Register. The article supported insider accounts of drug dealing and corruption. That same year, Betty Thompson and five other guards testified before state senate hearings on the alleged offenses at Frontera Prison. Prison officials declined to be interviewed for this story. However, Tip Kendall, spokesman for the California Department of Corrections, told an Unsolved Mysteries researcher, quote, I'm not saying the things people are alleging didn't happen. There's just no evidence to support them. End quote. Prison officials declined to be interviewed for the broadcast on Unsolved Mysteries in which this case was covered. However, Tip Kendall, spokesperson for the California Department of Corrections, told an Unsolved Mysteries researcher, quote, I'm not saying the things people are alleging didn't happen. There's just no evidence to support them. End quote, which is a bunch of bullshit. I mean, come on. Obviously, if you're a spokesperson, you're not honestly going to come out and say, yes, all of this stuff is happening because then you yourself are going to get in trouble. Spokesperson always toes the party line because otherwise if you say anything out of character, you're going to be the one that gets in big trouble. Now we're going to get into the suspects in the case. So the Frontier prison guards who were allegedly involved in illegal activities are suspected in Jessalyn's disappearance and Terry's death. Two employees named as being involved were Lieutenant Carmen Juarez and Hal Tanner. In October of 1987, 33-year-old prison guard Harold Delon Anderson was fired for forcing inmates through threats and intimidation to perform sexual acts on him. However, he was never criminally charged despite the overwhelming evidence against him. Several other guards witnessed these acts. One of the guards who reported him later received harassing phone calls and intimidating anonymous notes. The guard was also held in an office and harassed by officers, similar to what happened to Thompson. Guard Christine Lopez witnessed what appeared to be a drug deal between two inmates. When she questioned one of them, Lieutenant Juarez appeared and said that the inmate was with her. Lopez later discovered that drugs were being brought to the inmates on a food cart. She and other guards stopped this by searching carts thoroughly. Soon after, she became the victim of harassment. Holes were punched in a radiator, the radiator hose was cut, and she received several hang-up phone calls at home. In February of 1990, she quit and later sought treatment for PTSD and suicidal thoughts. Inmate Clark Ronnie Bear reported overhearing a very loud argument between Tanner and Thompson the day that Terry's body was removed. Thompson claimed that Tanner, Juarez and others intimidated and threatened her for several hours before she changed her report regarding Terry's death. Bear said that she was ordered by Juarez to type and retype the report four times. She also witnessed Juarez forging Thompson's signature. A former inmate, Wanda Washington, alleged that she was beaten by guards and prisoners in 1988 after she reported an elaborate smuggling operation at the prison. It is not known which guards were involved in this attack or the smuggling operation. In December of 1990, Juarez was arrested and charged with attempting to dissuade a witness and preparing false documents. She pleaded no contest to a lesser charge of destroying evidence and was sentenced to two years probation. Neither she nor any other guards have been charged in Jessalyn or Terry's cases. Accounts differ as to when Jessalyn was last seen. A witness reported that Jessalyn left the bath through the front door carrying her purse at around 9.30pm. However, Marilyn claimed that Jessalyn left to go to the bathroom at around 8.30pm, leaving her purse behind. Her purse later disappeared and according to Gary, several witnesses reported seeing her go out the back door. 
In June of 1992, after the story was filmed, police informed Jesselyn's family that she had in fact been murdered. On December 5th of 1984, parts of a woman's leg, arm and hand were found in a plastic bag in a drainage ditch adjacent to Interstate 15 in a remote corner of the desert in San Bernardino County near Baker, California. The remains were discovered just a few weeks after Jesselyn's disappearance. They were cremated in 1985, however the remains were not identified as hers until 1992, some eight years later. In July of 1992, the Orange County Sheriff's Office identified Jesselyn's killer as David Daniel Ribbis. He was a paroled ex-convict who'd served time for assault and passing bad checks. He worked at Charlie's Wild West Saloon, the bar where Jesselyn was last seen alive. He had been a suspect in the case for years. He'd been interviewed at least twice by police that we know of. According to Marilyn, when she arrived at the bar that night, Ribbis and Jesselyn came out. They were laughing and he had his arm around her shoulder. Throughout the evening, he hung out with them and flirted with Jessalyn. They had reportedly argued that same night as well. Marilyn also said that Ribbis and Jessalyn were together shortly before Jessalyn went to the bathroom. Shortly after Jessalyn left, Ribbis left as well. He returned about an hour later and later that night, an employee saw someone resembling Jessalyn laying in the back seat of Ribbis' car covered with a blanket. Before leaving, Ribbis told another witness that Jessalyn was alright and that he was going to take care of her. This was the last time she was seen alive. On October 12th of 1990, Ribbis died of a heart attack at the age of 45. However, shortly before his death, he revealed to family members that he had killed Jessalyn. In this supposed confession, he claimed that she willingly left the saloon with him and went to his nearby apartment. An argument ensued and he then took her, either voluntarily or involuntarily, to a remote area in San Bernardino County, shot her, dismembered her and dumped her body. In spring of 1992, Ribbis' relatives went to the police and told them about his deathbed confession. Other acquaintances later told police that he had confessed to Jessalyn's murder to them as well. A rifle, possibly used in the murder, was collected from his home. It was also reported that he had a knack for butchering livestock. Police stated they found no evidence that connected Jessalyn's murder to any drug activity or her job at the prison. They also found no connection between Ribbis and the prison. However, at the time of the announcement, Jessalyn's family did not believe that Ribbis was involved, and neither do I. They also have suspected that the remains identified as Jessalyn's may not be hers either. The remains were identified as hers based on the physical description, they were consistent with her age and physique, and Ribbis' confessions. Fingerprint analysis, however, was inconclusive. Jessalyn's daughter, interestingly enough, Leslie Grace, later claimed that the remains were never positively identified as Jessalyn's. Leslie claims that she gave police a sample of her DNA to test against the remains. It is not known what the results revealed. In an online forum discussion, she stated the following, quote, My name is Leslie Grace. My maiden name is Rich. Jessalyn Rich is my mother. I had to respond to your post because the ending is not true. The body parts found in San Bernardino, California were never identified. There were three or four body parts found. One of them was a forearm with the hand attached and another was the bottom part of someone's leg cut off from the knee down. My mother's shoe size was not the same as the size of whoever's foot that was and the fingerprints from the hand were not a match to my mother's. The remains were never ID'd. I have recently given my DNA to the police for an investigation involving these body parts. They are using my DNA to disprove the parts belong to my mother. Feel free to write to me if you like. Sincerely, Leslie Grace. End quote. 
She then wrote another message, quote, Hey, this is Leslie Grace. I just wanted to let you know the body parts from San Bernardino have never been identified. A sheriff came to my house a few months ago to collect my DNA to disprove the report that those parts were from my mother, Jessalyn Rich. I want to thank you for your interest in this case. My mum was never found, but they have closed the case. It's been 25 years and we just recently had a memorial service for her. I was very blessed to have a group of my church members donate the money for the headstone, an agency affiliated with the sheriff's department paid for the work to be done. I thank God for the blessings of my life, end quote. Then another person in that same forum made another claim stating, and I quote, The partial remains found were foot legs and a foot. They were never compared with DNA as the coroner's office in San Bernardino stated to the press that they destroyed the remains as they were not a repository for all the remains found in the desert. Her case is still listed with the DOJ as a missing person, end quote. In 2009, the case was officially closed and a headstone was made for Jessalyn. However, the case has many unresolved questions, including whether or not the remains were hers and whether or not Ribis was her killer. Although investigators believe he was responsible and that the prison was not involved, her family and former co-workers believe otherwise, and so do I. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I have covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time, next on Unanswered Questions. As Jane Morris made a missing person report with the Sheriff's Department around 5pm, deputies received a call about an abandoned, burned-out car discovered by someone off-roading in a remote area.